Hey there, welcome back to the listener's commentary on the book of 1 Peter. In this session, we're going to be looking at 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 10 through 21. And here's where it fits into the context. After the intro and greetings, Peter opens this letter with a praise to God for the great salvation that he's given us, a salvation that's so incredible and so certain that it enables us to celebrate now, even though we suffer with various hardships and trials. And the first couple verses of this section that we're looking at in this recording, verses 10 through 12, is really still a part of that. It's still Peter continuing to describe how great this salvation is, and he does so by pointing out that the Old Testament prophets who predicted it eagerly sought to understand it more and more, and not only that, Angels themselves long to look into these things. And so those two verses, in a lot of ways, are sort of the concluding verses of the previous section, the section about how great the salvation is that God has given us. But those two verses are also sort of the segue into the next section that says, in view of this great salvation, here's what you should do. And so we've included verses 10 and 12 here sort of as a wrap-up to the preceding and a segue to the next so that we can keep them all connected together. So verse 9 ends by saying this. It says, Now the outcome of our faith is the salvation of our souls. And verse 10 picks up by saying, As to this salvation, and so you can hear the connection, it's the salvation of our souls. And as to the salvation, here's what he says. The prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come to you made careful searches and inquiries, seeking to know what person or time the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating as he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. And so Peter as he's still really describing how great our salvation is, he says this hope of salvation is the very thing God's prophets talked about, and they looked forward to it, and it's come to us. So it's this thing that way back in the day, God's authorized spokesman, his prophets, wrote about, talked about, predicted, looked forward to. Well, those very things are the things now that have come to, to Christians, come to the original audience, and by extension to us. And as those prophets were receiving these insights and these messages from God himself, they realized that Man, what is this actually about? And so Peter tells us they made careful searches and inquiries into actually what they were talking about. Like they, they didn't fully understand them all. And they didn't know exactly what they were pointing to and what they were referring to and when they would come about. And so they, uh, they searched hard and long to try to understand because they wanted to know who or when these things would come to be. And notice here that uh, in those Old Testament prophets, Peter says that it was the Spirit of Christ that was uh, predicting these things. He was the one that was speaking to them and through them in these things. And I just think that's important for us to note. It's just a little passing detail, but sometimes the Holy Spirit is referred to as the Spirit of God. Sometimes he's referred to the Spirit of Christ. And it helps us when we hear a phrase like the Spirit of Christ. It puts a bit of a face on the Holy Spirit so that we realize he is the same kind of person with the same sort of character as Jesus himself. 
So Peter continues in verse 12 saying, now they made these careful searches and inquiries, trying really hard to understand when and what all this was about. Verse 12, Peter says, it was revealed to them that they weren't serving themselves, but you in these things, which now have been announced to you through those who preach the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. And so those Old Testament prophets were trying to figure it out. And Peter says that what was revealed to them is that they were pointing forward to a, a, a future time, a time sometime perhaps even in the distant future. And Peter says, and that time is now, that that time has come to you. In his case, the original audience, those churches there in what is now modern day Turkey, that those very things, when you heard the gospel and responded to the gospel that was preached to you, um, by those who announced it through the Holy Spirit, well, that was the culmination of, the fulfillment of these future predictions that those Old Testament prophets had received. And not only that, these things that you have received, he says, are so incredible, so great, that even angels long to look into them. And so the prophets eagerly sought to understand them, and angels long to look into them, angels long to figure all that out and understand what it all means and how it's all going to play out. And notice once again, by way of another passing detail, Peter had just said about the Old Testament prophets that it was the Spirit of Christ working in them and through them, speaking through them. Well, notice what he says about the gospel that came to those there that Peter is writing to, that the gospel had been preached to you by the Holy Spirit. So this gospel that is spoken and the spokesman, whoever they were, we don't know when these churches were planted. We don't know who planted those churches. We know some of it, like in Asia, in Ephesus, it was through Paul's ministry there. But Peter says ultimately that the Holy Spirit is the one who has brought the gospel to you and empowered those people to actually speak it to you. So again, passing detail, but it's important to see that like the Old Testament prophets, so too with the gospel authorized spokesmen and gospel empowered spokesmen, they're anointed by the Holy Spirit as well. So by way of summary and transition, keep the overall context in mind. Peter is envisioning for us how great the salvation is that we have received. And that started clear back at chapter 1, verse 3, and it really continues all the way up to this point at verse 12. And what Peter is saying in verses 10 through 12 is that this salvation is so incredible that the Old Testament prophets tried their best to figure it out, and angels want to look into it to understand it more. And we've been told that salvation, we have been given that salvation in the good news about Jesus. So, based on that then, Peter is going to give a call to action in verses 13 and following. Here's what he says, therefore, and whenever you see a therefore like that, we want to go back and see what that therefore is there for, right? And this therefore says, based on that, based on the fact that you have received this incredible salvation, prepare your minds for action. Keep sober in spirit. Set your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, the way this is translated here, it sounds like there's three imperatives or three commands, but really there's only one. It sounds like prepare your minds for action, keep sober in spirit, set your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you. Three calls to action. But that's not really the way it's literally 
written. Literally, there's one imperative, one command, and that is fix your hope. Set your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus. That's the call to action. The other two phrases are actually participles, really providing like attendant circumstances to actions that go along with fixing your hope. So the first First phrase, prepare your minds for action. Preparing your minds for it. Do this. As a part of getting your hope fully fixed on Jesus, prepare your minds for action. Um, and it literally reads, girding up the loins of your mind, which is just a really weird old phrase. And that's why most of the new translations don't translate it that way. But it derives from the practice of tying up the longer outer robe so they'd be ready to work or run, right? If you're wearing a long robe that goes down to your ankles, you got to get that out of the way so you can move more freely. And so they would... Uh, pull that up and tuck that into their belt or tie it into their belt to get it up above their knees so that they could be ready to move more freely. That's the idea of girding your loins, right? And so this idea is really getting ready for action, getting ready to work. And so really here in reference to your mind means being mentally prepared for staying true to Jesus, keeping his coming in mind, keeping that he's going to be uh, revealed at some point. So you got to keep your mind focused on that. That's the first attendant circumstance. The other one, keeping sober in spirit. And that's really one word in Greek, nepho, which means be, being sober, being sober, literally being sober, but it came to be used metaphorically for like being self-controlled, being disciplined, being level-headed. And then you get the command. So preparing your minds for action, keeping sober, fix your hope, literally just hope, uh, hope on the grace that's going to come when Jesus revealed. And not just a little, not just kind of hope, but he says hope completely, like hope fully, uh, all the way on the grace that's going to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus. So put all your hope on the grace that God will bring to you when the curtain is pulled back and Jesus is revealed at the end. Bank totally on that. And so that's the call to action. In view of how great the salvation we've been given is, fix your hope fully on it. Fix your hope fully on God's grace, his favor, his kindness that's going to be poured out on you when Jesus is revealed at the culmination of all things. And here's what you should do. As you completely hope in the coming of Jesus and the grace of God that's going to be revealed in that moment, do this. Verse 14, as obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lusts, which were yours in your ignorance, but... Like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves in all your behavior, because it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And so, as a means of fixing your hope completely on the grace of God to come, live differently now. Be holy now. So, part of what it means to set our hope completely on the future revelation of Jesus is to live holy lives in the present. And remember that the whole description of our great salvation began in verse 3 with a description of us being born again to a living hope. So it's appropriate then for him to say in verse 14, 
As obedient children, those who have been born again to a new hope and into a new family, right? Like you have experienced new birth, thus as obedient children, live differently. And what he says is don't be conformed. Don't uh, really don't arrange yourself, arrange your life. Don't shape your life after the former lusts or the former desires. We usually associate the word lust particularly with sexual desire, but the word is broader than that. It just means desires in general. So don't, don't shape your life around the desires you used to have when you were ignorant of God's ways and God's truth. But now that you're God's children, verse 15, like the Holy One who called you, the Holy One is God himself. He's the Holy One. And the basic idea of being holy is to be different, distinct, separate or set apart. And God is the Holy One, both in his being as well as in his conduct, that in his being, he's uncreated. He's the only uncreated being in the entire universe. That's different. That's distinct. That's set apart. He's uh, holy in his being or distinct in his being in the fact that he's eternal. He's infinite, right? Those things are completely and totally unique about God. Who he is as a person is holy. He's separate just by virtue of his being from created beings and finite beings. But he's also holy in his conduct, in that he's pure, he's just, he's wise, right? These are things that describe the way God does things, the way he acts. Well, now we have been born again and we're his children, so Peter is calling us to be like him in the ways in which we can, that is, in our way of life in our conduct. And so he says, be holy yourselves also in all of your behavior. So we are to be distinct. We are to be different. We are to be set apart or separate from the way of life and the culture and the desires and the aims and the ambitions of the world around us. That's the idea. In view of the fact we have this great hope and we've been given this great salvation, in view of the fact that we're now God's children, be different, be holy. And that is to be set apart from sin and injustice and set apart for purity and for God-likeness, Christ-likeness. And he says we're supposed to be that in all our behavior. That word translated behavior is a really important word for Peter. It's the word anastrophe, and it shows up multiple times throughout his letter. It's actually going to show up three times in the next few verses. Here, translated behavior, in verse 17, you'll have the verb form of it. And then in verse 18, you get the, the noun again, and it's translated there, way of life rather than behavior. And that's because the word is a little bit hard to capture in English because it's so broad and so all-inclusive. And so it means something more like way of life, the way it's translated in verse 18. It has to do with your whole conduct, the whole way your life is organized and arranged and carried out. And so may all of that, Peter says, be holy, be distinct, be set apart for God, for his purposes, and carried out according to his wisdom, his ways, his holiness. In fact, the basis, Peter says, for our holiness is God's character, right? But like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves in all your behavior because, verse 16, it is written, 
you shall be holy, for I am holy. And here, notice the formula. It is written to tell us Peter's quoting scripture. And this is a quote from Leviticus. It's in some parts of Leviticus, this is almost like the refrain of the book of Leviticus. The most well-known chapter where it shows up is chapter 19, part of the so-called holiness code in Leviticus. Uh, you shall be holy because I am holy. You're going to live holy lives. You're going to be different and distinct from the world around you because God himself is different and distinct. He's holy. And so the basis for holiness is God's character. Holiness is a reflection of who God is. And since we're made in his image, we're made to be like him. That is, we're made to operate or function the way he does. And that's why holiness is good for us. It's operating according to the way we're designed to operate. In fact, I think we could fairly say that the more holy you are, the more human you are. And the less holy you are, the less human you are. Why? Well, because God is holy, you are made in God's image, and thus you and I are made to be holy. And as we then embody God's very own holiness, we actually become more authentically, fully, genuinely human the way we were designed to operate. So Peter's calling us, because of the salvation that we've received and because of the hope we have to live holy lives in the present world. And then he's going to go on and give us two motivations for living holy lives in the following verses. So verse 17 gives us the first motivation. This is what he says. If you address as father, the one who impartially judges according to each one's work, conduct yourselves in fear during the time of your stay on earth. So here's the first motivation. It's judgment. It's that God is an impartial judge, and he'll accurately and fairly evaluate everyone's lives, including our own. And thus, we need to conduct ourselves. That's the verb of the word translated behavior above and way of life below, right? This is that verb for, for the same idea as the noun anastrophe. So conduct yourselves. In other words, carry out your life, Go about your life in fear, that is, in holy, reverent awe and great respect and honor for God. He is, after all, our Father. Notice that, that we're going to treat him with honor and we want to honor his name and respect him because he caused us to be born again. We are now his sons and daughters. He is our Father and we're going to carry out our lives in a way that's going to honor and respect him during the time of our stay, in this translation, it says, on earth. Literally, that word uh, that's translated stay on earth in the New American Standard here is sojourn. It's a synonym for the word translated strangers in the introduction and greeting. It has the idea of living somewhere as a foreigner. And in this context, it speaks to living in a world where the way of life strains us and discourages us and leads us astray because it's contrary to God's way of life. So we feel out of place. We're sojourning here. And so it's like we're living in this world and we feel like foreigners and we're waiting for the world to come. Here's the problem, though, um, that the unfortunately, the New American Standard has supplied this phrase on earth with it. It's not in the Greek. It's just literally during the time of your sojourn, during your sojourn. There's no on earth. And 
it's inaccurate to say on earth because it makes it sound like uh, our time on earth is temporary. But Peter doesn't believe that. In fact, you know, take a look at 2 Peter chapter 3, and you'll see Peter talk about what we're actually looking forward to is a new heavens and a new earth. That's our final destination is a new earth. And so we're going to be on earth forever and ever, ever, but it's going to be a remade, reborn, renewed earth. And so our sojourn isn't on earth versus somewhere else. It's on this current earth, this current world that is broken and fallen and anti-God versus the new earth where righteousness dwells. And so I think we need to just strike that idea of sojourn or stay on earth and have it more the idea of just we're living in a society, a culture uh, that is against God's way, and thus we are like foreigners living in a strange land. And that's the idea that Peter has, both by the word strangers in the introduction and greeting, and by this word translated stay or sojourn here. And so the first motivation for living holy lives is that there's going to be a day of judgment, and God's the one who's going to evaluate everybody's lives, and we want to honor God, our Father, with our life. Now, Verse 18 then goes on to the second motivation. He says, knowing this, that while we're living in this world as like sojourning in a foreign land, knowing this, that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your feudal way of life inherited from your forefathers, but with precious blood as of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. And so here's the second motivation for living holy lives, and that is the price of our redemption. The price of our redemption should move us, motivate us to live differently. And what is the price of our redemption? Well, Peter says it's not silver or gold, but blood, specifically the blood of Christ himself. Now, redemption, this idea was common in the Gentile world of the audience that Peter's writing to in, say, the slave market, where somebody had maybe through bad financial mismanagement or misfortune somehow ended up being enslaved. They're now, for whatever reason, in the slave market, and you might want to buy them out of their slavery. Uh, you have the means to do it, or your whole family has pulled their resources, and now you're going to buy this kinsman of yours out of their slavery. You're going to redeem them. And so that idea of redemption was common in the broader Greco-Roman world of Peter's day. And then as a Jew, what was the great idea of redemption that would like fill Peter's mind? Well, it was, as a Jew, it was when they were liberated, redeemed out of their slavery in Egypt and brought into God's new promised land. And so redemption is this idea of a payment of some sort of price that sets someone free. It's a way of liberating people from their slavery. That's the basic idea of redemption. And Peter says that they were redeemed not with perishable things, not with uh, gold or silver, that is with money. They weren't purchased out of their their slavery with the with money like in the slave market, but instead um, they were redeemed from their feudal way of life with precious blood as of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. And that uh, language really derives from and alludes to 
Passover and the Exodus, that great Old Testament redemption where uh, lambs were killed and blood was put on the doorpost. And then that was celebrated every year for the Jews in the Passover feast and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Um, And that was the celebration of their redemption. Well, Peter says that the, the full climax of that, the ultimate Passover occurred in the person of Jesus, and it's his blood by which you have been redeemed. And so in view of that, in view of the fact that the the Messiah himself poured out his own blood to set you free from your slavery to a feudal way of life, knowing that's the case, you should live holy lives. And so this really is that second motivation for why we should live holy lives. And so here in these verses, you have uh, first motivation, that there's going to be a, a judgment day. Your life is going to be fairly evaluated by God himself. And not only that, you're, you have been redeemed. You have been set free from futility, a futile way of life. And so may we live holy lives because of that. Then Peter wraps up this section by reflecting on Jesus and his death and then brings it all back around to where it started, the call to hope fully on the grace that is to come at the revelation of Jesus. And so Peter says about Jesus, for he, Jesus, was foreknown before the foundation of the world. In other words, God knew, even before creation, that Christ would have to come, that he would have to lay down his life to redeem us. Not that God didn't know Jesus before the foundation of the world. He knew what was going to be required of Jesus. He knew that he was going to have to send his son in order to redeem and rescue the world before the foundations of the world. And so before the foundation of the world, he was foreknown, but he has appeared in these last times for the sake of you who through him are believers in God. And so most of Peter's audience would have been Gentiles and they, previous to the coming of Christ, were uh, they had no knowledge of the true God. As Peter has said, they lived in ignorance. But now, now because of Christ, the doorway has been opened to all. And, and Jesus' spokesmen are going out through the world, inviting all to come to him. And so through him, they are believers in God who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and your hope are in God. And so we come back to, we are born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus. And here, once again, we get faith and hope and the resurrection of Jesus. So his resurrection is the foundation of our faith. His resurrection is the guarantee of our hope. Uh, And so our faith and our hope are in God who raised Jesus from the dead. Now, in this section, there's so much here we could reflect on, right? Like, What does it mean to live in fear, live with reverent awe before God? What what does it look like to arrange our whole way of life, uh, according to what Peter says here? The idea of holiness, living out holy lives. But all of that is arranged uh, in what Peter says here under the primary call to action of fixing our hope. Like what we hope in shapes how we carry out our lives. Our way of life is directly formed by what we're ultimately hoping to get out of life. So, if we fix our hope on Jesus and his coming, then we're going to live for that. We're going to live unto that. We're going to live looking forward to that. And thus, we're going to be set apart for him. 
Our way of life will be different. It will imitate his values and his aims and his ambitions. It will embody his character. Why? Well, because he and his kingdom are our hope. And that's the idea of what Peter says here. So we live holy lives because we're hoping in Jesus, because our hope is fixed on him. And that doesn't mean that we we withdraw from the world and you know to live a holy life and everything we do doesn't mean we have nothing to do with the fallen culture around us. As Craig Keener in his commentary on 1 Peter points out, um, it doesn't mean we don't live or work in secular environments. It means that we live and work in those environments as representatives of, as ambassadors for Jesus himself. We're ambassadors of King Jesus. And we interact with others and we treat others according to the values and the wisdom of Jesus's kingdom. We're like consecrated priests for, for God in the world. We're set apart as God's holy representatives in this world because we're hoping in his kingdom and we're looking forward to it. And that's the ultimate point of this section here in 1 Peter chapter 1.